0: We're in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. If you would grab a Bible just so that you can follow along, that would be great. As you do, let me just kind of set the stage for what's going on in the next couple of weeks. We're kind of taking a break from Luke just to, to settle into some, just to reorient ourselves around the mission and vision of the church. And so we talk a lot about worship and mission worship is the devoting of our words and deeds to praise and honor God as most glorious above all others. This, this worship, this, this living with word and deed to glorify God, to honor Him, to adore Him, to demonstrate His worth of worship. It's the highest call. It's the most uh, the, the highest purpose for which any individual Christian or the church, God's people, exists. It's the highest call. Mission, the going and proclaiming of the gospel so that others can know God's glory, so that others can hear of him and know God's glory and then join together with us and declare it, that's a very close second. We, we see worship and mission intrinsically woven together throughout the purposes of God in the history of redemption. And you've likely heard me use this quote before. I think it's a very fitting quote, especially for uh, 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 days like today. But, but 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 it's from Piper in a book that he wrote called Let the Nations Be Glad. And he uses these words. He kind of opens and introduces the idea with this. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't worship is not or I'm sorry worship is ultimate not missions because God is ultimate not man when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God missions will be no more it's a temporary necessity but worship abides Forever. There's a couple of things I like about this. This quote clearly demonstrates this perspective, clearly demonstrates the preeminence or the priority of worship over mission. But intrinsically woven together with that worship in this point in the history of redemption is mission. God's mission exists to increase or multiply worship, to, to spread it. But the thing is, we're not putting worship on hold. It's not like, okay, well, for right now, in this point in the history of redemption, we're going to focus on mission and ignore worship. Like when the the day comes when all the thousands of the redeemed and the millions and and all the generations of the redeemed fall on their faces before God, when that happens, then we'll worship and, and we won't have to mission anymore. We don't do that. The idea is that one waits for the other to be completed. They happen coincidentally. They're intrinsically woven together. The thread and theme of worship and mission are tied together throughout the entirety of Scripture. No, our life, our worship, our life of worship is the very motive and power for our life of mission. Piper concludes, he sets the book up the way I just read, and then he concludes in... In the conclusion, this way. Worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. It's the fuel and the goal of missions. Worship is the goal of missions because in missions we aim, I love this phrase, in missions we aim to bring the nations into the white, hot enjoyment of, the, of God's glory. We are seeking in mission to, to enable people to enjoy the white, hot glory of God. So They would worship him so that they would stand and glorify him. That's his idea. So, so in mission, that's our purpose is, is to do that. It is, he goes on, it is the fuel of missions because we can't commend what we don't cherish. We can't call out, let the nations be glad until we say, I rejoice in the Lord. What he's saying is, we won't move on his mission until we worship his name. We won't seek to spread his gospel until we worship him above all others. Missions begins and ends in worship. These things are intrinsically, worship and mission, intrinsically woven together. Worship and mission happening coincidentally. True worship gives way, gives way to mission, and mission increases true worship, both in the lives of those going and worshiping in mission, and the lives of those who would receive the mission, who would respond in faith to the mission. The, the mission increases worship, and the worship increases mission. This is the core purpose of our church. This is the reason we exist. We recognize that because of the gospel, we say it this way. We recognize because of the gospel, we worship. It's an all-of-life worship, word and deed worship, right? We worship and lead others to worship in an all-of-life word and deed type of worship. Because of the gospel, we worship and lead others to worship the living God. This is going to find this expression in a number of ways. Sometimes corporately, sometimes individually. This happens to be one of the ways it'll find its expression right here. Singing together, studying the Word of God together, praying together. But it doesn't stop at just what's happening in this room. The reality is is if if you sat out there and ate donuts and talked and loved on one another a little bit, it can be worshipful. If you stood at the door and greeted someone and and came in, then that's an act of worship. If you stood on the stage and sang a song as I preached the message, it is an act of worship so long as I seek to glorify God. Everything we do corporately can be worshipful. Everything we do, so long as it isn't sinful, can be worshipful. Even those things we do individually. For example, we can work. Like, you literally can go to work to the glory of the God who created You could show up at the job that drives you nuts, right? You know, the one, 40 hours a week, 40 40 hours a week, five day, oh gosh, eight hours a day. You know what I'm saying. You know, that job that takes so much from you. (laughs) I get paid to talk. It's crazy. You can go and do that to the glory of God. We can work. We can eat. We can sleep. Yes, you can sleep to the glory of God. In fact, I would suggest if you don't sleep, if it's not a physical condition, but you don't go to sleep because you don't, you just got too much to do. I can't rest. I can't take a day off. Can't take, I just gotta stay up all night and work all the time. I'd say that's because you don't really trust God. It's probably rooted in there somewhere. But we can sleep to the glory of God. We can vacation. We can entertain ourselves. We can can parent to the glory of God. And yes, we can even adult. Like we can be adults to the glory of God. All of these things, whether corporate or individual, we can do to the glory of God. They can be worshipful. They were intended by God. That's the very reason that Jesus came, was Jesus came worshiping his Father, honoring his Father with his life, loving his Father first. He he came and he lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, rose victoriously, so that worship was made possible. He initiates this mission that worship would go forward. Then he sends his disciples. He says, now you go. You increase this mission. You increase this work. So that, so that he would send them out as God-worshippers who would bear witness to God's glory so that other people would become God-worshippers. And here's the thing. This wasn't supposed to stop with them or just that generation. It was supposed to spread, just like a cold spreads, right? Like, like the flu, but better, better than the flu, like fruitful and good for us kind of thing. It spreads not just in that day and age, but from generation to generation to generation that you and I can sit in this room and know that we have an ability to glorify the God who creates and saves and that we have the opportunity to go worshiping in such a way that it leads others to see his glory and turn and worship with us. But here's the thing, this isn't just this isn't just something you find in catchy church vision statements, right? Like, I, I wrote that when I came up with that on my own. I really want you to think it's catchy, and you can affirm me of that later. I'll expect it. I'll stand at the back, and you can affirm me of that later. I, but, but seriously, it's, it's not just a catchy statement in a vision statement. It's not just something that a popular pastor wrote in a book, This is God's plan for his people, intrinsically woven together. We see these threads. Yes, we see these threads woven together throughout the entirety of the Scripture. So it's very easy to stop and land in a place to spend a couple of weeks reorienting around the very reason God saved us and the very purpose that God gave us now that we're saved to live for. We're doing that in Matthew chapter 22 Verses 36 through 40 this week. We'll read them and then just work our way through. But when the Pharisees, I'm going to for, for the sake of context, I'm just going to read beginning in verse 34. Our focus will be 36 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, that's Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together... And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. It's important you note that. He didn't ask seeking opinion. He didn't ask to learn from him. He asked a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. So Jesus gives him a little bonus lesson. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Now Jesus is being tested by the religious elites uh, in Jerusalem. In fact, the the question being asked of him at this point that we're studying is the third question. So first the Pharisees send in this guy and then he he goes in sending these people to test Jesus and he answers them. And the Sadducees see, oh, they, they, they failed, but... I bet we can catch him. And so they test Jesus and they ask him a question and, and, and Jesus answers them. And then so the Pharisees get together and they're like, we got somebody that will stump him. Let's send, let, let's send Joe Bob. You know, I don't know if that's his name. Joe Bob's going to go in. He knows the law. He is an expert in the law. He's going to catch Jesus. And so this man goes to Jesus and he's like, teacher, with a bit of fake humility, what's the greatest commandment? Now, you should know this isn't a particularly unique question. This is something they sat around and discussed amongst themselves quite a bit. They, the, 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 the religious elites, the religious leaders of the day sat around and talked about this kind of stuff a lot. They were always seeking to know what was the weightiest and, and lightest of the laws. They, in their wisdom, they had discerned that there are 613 laws in the Mosaic Covenant that they were to obey. Right? Some of those laws were negative, like don't do this kind of laws. Some of those laws were positive, go do this kind of laws. And, and, and among both sets of, of those laws, there were weighty laws and there were light laws. There were laws that they carried a greater impact than other laws. It's kind of like in the Roman Catholic teaching of mortal and venial sins. Mortal sins are those sins that immediately you commit it, boom, condemnation. Dying going to hell, apart from God forever. Venial sins are less sins. They're less weighty. They're, they're not immediately going to result in condemnation or separation from God. And then this is the way that they looked at it. And so they worked this out. And, and in, in some way, I imagine, and I haven't ever talked to one of the Pharisees who lived in, day, in Jesus' day, so I can't affirm this or confirm this, but I imagine that in some way that's them seeking to know what we can get away with doing and what we just can't get away with doing. Like, I, I won't ever kill a person But come on, cheating on my taxes is not that big a deal, right? In the whole scheme of things, God's not going to send me to hell for that, you know. Now, I think that's what their idea was. So they sit around and have these conversations a lot, and so they're expecting a certain kind of answer already. And so the teachers and religious leaders, they, they, they send this man, and this man goes to him, and Jesus shocks them. I think he shocks them. His answer draws from the scriptures, Deuteronomy 6, 5, we just read that verse, and then uh, for, the, for the call to love God first, and then Leviticus 19, 18, to love your neighbor as yourself. He answers, and this happened in every case, he answered in such a way that it silenced his critics. Like he was, he was we would expect him to be right because this is God in flesh, right? So God is always right. More than the customer is right, God is is right. If he decided today that two plus two is five, we'd have to change mathematics to fit what God says because he's always right. That's just the way it works. It's the way he never lies. He's never wrong. He knows all things. He's never learning anything because he has all knowledge. And when he speaks, that's just the way it is. So Jesus, we would expect him to be right. They, I, I don't think they did, but, but in answering, he answered with such clarity and wisdom that it silenced them. In fact, Mark's account of this event says that when it came to this point that after he answered this question, no one dared to ask him another question. It wasn't like it was no one thought about it, just no one had the nerve to do it. No one dared ask him another question. But I think... As we look at this, without just a whole lot of of work and explanation and breaking it apart, I think it's easy to see that even Jesus sees worship and mission intrinsically woven together. Oh, he says the whole law and prophets, everything you know, all the revelation of God, all of the commands that he's ever been uh, ever given you, all of the covenant, all of, the, all of the, the, the revelation and the prophetic promises, all of them rest on these two things. Loving God first and loving your neighbor as yourself. Loving God so much that you are devoted primarily and preeminently to him, that he is the very front seat of your life, that he takes the the throne of your life, he displaces you and any other thing that you would prioritize because he holds preeminence over you, such a love that devotes itself fully to him. How else could we define this but worship? Isn't that what he's calling us to? A life that's so, uh, so, so given to his honor, so given to his glory that we direct our, our thoughts and our actions towards him. But it doesn't stop at him. Immediately, he says, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So we move from this vertical devotion, this vertical relationship that is primary, preeminent over our lives, that is purposeful and the complete devotion, and it automatically begins to feed horizontally where we displace ourselves to the point that we're not even loving ourselves more than we love other people. It's not that we hate ourselves, but we no longer love ourselves most. Even in the Law and Prophets, it's summed up with this perspective of worship and mission. Worship being our honor and devotion to God. Mission being our love and our care and concern for those around us. Today, our focus is on worship. So the main point that I I would encourage you to take, the main point I'm going to seek to help you see... Is that central to the the command to love God first is the call to worship God most. Central to the command to love God first is the call to worship God most. You cannot separate these ideas. See, Jesus doesn't just set out a love that's simply emotive. It's not the the pop culture's view of love that gives people everything they want and never what they need. It's not the pop culture's view of love when when, when it's just words that we speak. It's not the popular culture's view of love that is all about our feelings or more specifically about our attraction and physical attraction and intimacy together. Now we could go into the language of it. We could go and, and look at the word he uses for love but I don't think we need to do that. He qualifies it. He categorizes it in such a way that we see love to be much more than an emotion. Much more than just simply words we say. Much more than, 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 than just some intimacy. Look at what he calls us to. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Not a piece of it. Not some of it. Not even most of it. Every aspect of your heart. And I'm not talking about the muscle, and I'm not uh, for for us, we'd be talking about the seat of emotions. That's not how they would have perceived that. That's not how they would have received that word. It's the core of one's personal being. Like we struggle with our identity. We struggle with knowing how to identify ourselves, right? But this this is the idea of knowing ourselves and everything we are, is being directed to love God. Love God with our identity. Love God with the source of all we are. So you can fill in this line, fill in the blank with your name, that, that, that all I am, all blank is, is directing itself to love God most. To love Him first. To put Him before any other with a purpose and desire to see Him loved. He says to love with all our heart, with all our soul. Now this, in their mind, I think, based on my study, would be more indicative of what they would consider their emotions. So there's not a removal of emotion. This isn't just some, some uh, uh, feelingless expression. This is not disconnected from our, our emotive being. With all our heart, with all of the the central core of our being, the central core of our identity directed to love him, and with all we feel, with all our motive passions, with all of our our, our deep desires, with all of those things we long for, to love him most, to love him first. With all our mind. This intellectual, willful determination to action was what this word would have spoken to. It's not just considering the strength to actually do something, but it's taking in mind the plans and the thoughts that lead to action, the decisions that move us to action, the deciding to swing my left arm. As I, I mean, the whole time I'm up here talking with my hands, right? All of this deciding right now. I'm doing it not. Well, partly I'm doing it because I don't know how to talk about my hands. But but all of this to to draw you in, to see how big, to see how majestic, to know that God is lovely starting not in the action but in the thought that leads to action in the thought that moves us to action so we we love him with every piece of who we are from the inside out every bit of our volitional emotional and cognitive self loving god making him first and foremost preeminent and primary in our life this is the command so we act We react and we interact with loving God as the foundation and the primary purpose, the very thread that runs through, the very foundation on which it stands, the very theme for which it exists. Love God. We relate, we date, and we marry. With loving God as the foundation and the primary purpose, we parent and raise our children with loving God as the theme of that uh, that parenting. We work, we rest, we play. We love God. Or, or, Or we work, we rest, we play, we entertain ourselves, we vacation with loving God as the foundation and the primary purpose of everything we do. This is God's intended design. This is the command that that, that every other command, that every other expectation is ever built upon. It is the springboard that leads to every other command. Even the second command finds its footing in the first. A life lived directing our love so fully towards him. That there's no room for worship of anything but Him. And had Adam and Eve not fallen into sin, this is just the way it would be. We'd be ruling, subduing the earth, we'd be filling it, being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, all to the glory of God. We would eat the food that He provided to His glory. We would rest and relax in His glory. We would work and bear fruit through the hands, or through our work, to His glory. But we know that's not the way it is. So, does it still matter? Does this even have a place in our lives? Why? Why? Why would it matter now? We know we can't accomplish it. It, it Ultimately, it condemns us. We, we recognize. We've even confessed. I, I, I personally confessed. I hope that you joined in that confessing. Our hearts are drawn to other gods. Why? Why would we worry about it now? I think in the text, we can discern four answers to that question. First, I would say that loving God is the first priority because he alone is gloriously worthy. There's a lot of things we devote ourselves to. There's a lot of things we love with our whole heart, with our whole mind, with our whole whole being, but none deserve it so much as God. There is no one that comes close. God alone is glorious. There is no other. Well, what do we mean? What What, what is his glory? What is it, What are we speaking of? I, I think a lot of times when I think of his glory, I think of light that radiates out from him, you know, like I imagine this being, and I don't have a picture in my mind because I don't really know what to think God looks like. I just imagine light rays, you know, like when the sun comes through the clouds on a, on a, on a day where the clouds are kind of, it's a clear day, and the clouds are going, and you can look across, and you can see the sun rays coming down. Uh, for some reason, that's, that's what I kind of imagined the glory of God to be. But, but man, it's difficult when you stop and think about it. It's difficult to kind of really bear this out, to define it fully. Well, well I had looked for that for some time. I had, I had studied it and just longed to know it better, and I came across a, a sermon uh, by John Piper, uh, which he built out, biblically built out, uh, I think, one of the best definitions of the glory of God that I've read or that I've come across. And and, and so I, I just would encourage you to think of it like this. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and the greatness of his manifold Perfections, And so, so, so as, as you read the sermon, as you listen to the sermon, you, you'll see that what he's talking about is it is the expression of all of his holiness. It is the expression of all of his perfection. It is the expression of all of his beauty and all of his majesty, all of the manifold perfections, all the ways that he is, he is good and great and gracious, all of that rolled up into one and being expressed in such a way that we can experience it so that we can see it. So. You You might think of it in terms of this. As we're sitting in this room, if all the lights were out, we wouldn't have any idea if there was anything good in the light bulbs above us, right? We wouldn't mean anything if they were sitting there dark. But you flip the switch and the light shines and there's good light that shines on us. And So so what this is is this expression that God gives us. It's kind of like the light shining out of these light bulbs. is, is, is we are able to see all of his goodness, all of his perfections, all of his holiness in his glory and we can know that in a lot of ways but but, but let me just point you to the source of all of that knowledge. And it is in the scripture. We see it in creation. According to Psalms nineteen one. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Every time you walk out the door of your house. And you look into the sky. And the clouds are coming by. The, even if they're rain clouds. Even if it's hailstones. Even even as the night falls. As the winter comes. And snow falls. And, 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 and then spring comes. And leaves sprout. And grass grows. All of these things bring and declare the glory of God. They show us the beauty and majesty of His perfections. We see it in His angels. As Isaiah was hearing the call to be his, his prophet, Isaiah is standing in a vision. He's standing in the throne room of God. And says, and he's, he's there, he hears this. It says in Isaiah 6.3, And one called to another and said, speaking of the angels that surrounded the throne of God, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Even the angels express the understanding of his glory and his holiness. Holy, holy, holy. His holiness, his glory, his expression of his perfection and his distinctness in the world is evident everywhere we look. We find it in the law. Exodus 22 through 3 doesn't state it plainly but just assumes it. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God understands, he assumes that he is the most glorious of all. And because of his power being made evident in his redemptive efforts for the, Egypt, or for the Israelites coming out of Egypt, I am the one that now stands preeminent before you. You shall have no one else because only I am glorious enough. And we find it in the gospel. Hebrews 1, 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. This is Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his nature power, after making purification for our sins, after doing the work of living a perfect life and dying a sacrificial death, resurrecting victoriously, after making purifications for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God's glory is made clear in the gospel, in the law, among the angels and in all of creation. We can see and experience his glory and we are shown over and over and over and over again that he alone is glorious enough to be worshipped preeminently and primarily in our lives. He deserves this worship. He deserves alone to be loved first. And second, we love him for who he is, for he is gloriously worthy. We love him also for what he has done. Loving God is the first priority because he so graciously loved us First, you're probably familiar with the, the passage, First John, that, that says this kind of outright, just plainly says it. First John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. But if you go to that passage, you read the context. And I would encourage you to do that. We're not going to have time to do it today, but I would encourage you to go sit down and read it. That, that passage is not just giving us a command of something we should do. It, that, that's there. That's there. It, it should be evident. His love should be evident in us. But it's not just a command about what we should do, but an explanation also of how we can, like why we can. The the reason we can love is because God loved us. In fact, if, if if his love isn't in us, if, if 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 we aren't loving anyone else, it's because his love isn't there. John says it's because we're missing his love. And so our love, being uh, 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 just our lives of being connected to his love, become a conduit. That that if we have been loved by him and have received his love, they are going to. It's going to extend itself to others. And so the reality is, is the reason we can love him. It's because he graciously loved us first. And you might ask, well, how in the world do you see that in this passage? Though I mean, okay, so you went and jumped to a whole other passage to make a point. But, but is it evident here? Yes. Yeah, it's evident here. But the reality is it's is evident in the very fact that we have the command at all. It's evident in the fact that, that Jesus is the one speaking it and the events that are about to transpire, it's evident in these things. See, God didn't have to subject himself to providing a law at all. The reality is, is when this man could have, could, came to him and said, hey, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus could have said, don't you wish you knew. Is he subject to this man? Like, does he owe this man something? He loved him enough that he'd tell him the truth. It's evident in the fact that this is Jesus, the God-man, God in flesh, the one who put on on flesh to dwell among us. This is God speaking. Like When Adam and Eve sinned, did did God have to determine to send his son? Did, Did God have to provide redemption? Did God have to do those things? Did God have to send his son to live a perfect life, die a sacrificial death, rise in victory? Did he have to do those things? No. But he did it because he loves us. It just so happens that as Jesus is in the midst of this, the whole circumstance that he's surrounded by, it just so happens he's answering this question in the midst of Holy Week. Maybe like on Wednesday of Holy Week. So he's just ridden into Jerusalem to the cries of the people, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. He's about to get to the place where he's standing in Pilate's courtyard and all the people are surrounding him and saying, Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And here's Jesus in the middle of it knowing that just happened and this is just about to happen. But hey, you know what? These people need to hear from me. So he doesn't write them off. He doesn't ignore their need. He loves him first. And we know he loves him first because they were not there to love Jesus. They were there to discredit him. They were there to test him. And if they would receive that love, then their desire would be to love him back. We obviously know that's not the way it went. We can love God. We should love God, we, but we can love God and we li- will love God when we own or realize and know and trust and believe that he has loved us first. Third, loving God is the first priority because apart from it, we can do no other good. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, he's lived in North Africa. He lived uh, around the late 300s, early 400s. He developed his view of virtue, like living a good life, around the idea of love in the right priority, in the, in the right order the theory was this and and I'll just read it to you from on on Christian doctrine something he wrote living a just and holy life so that's virtuous life or good life living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things to love things that is to say to love things in the right order so that you do not love what is not to be loved so we shouldn't love things that aren't supposed to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved. So we, we don't love what we shouldn't love, and we do love what we should love, or have a greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. So, so, so what this is, he's, he's showing us this whole prioritization of loving things, loving Not not loving things we shouldn't. Yes, loving things we should, but recognizing that there's some things that we should love more than others, that some things on a scale or prioritization of love, which we all know we do, right? You probably love your child more than you love your neighbor, probably more than you love your enemy, we prioritize our love all the time. It's not the, this is not something that's new to us, right? So, so he's saying that, that we shouldn't love things equally that should be loved in prioritization, and we shouldn't love things in prioritization that should be loved equally. That we're supposed to get our order of love right. And that when we don't, it is impossible for us to live a holy and just life, a virtuous life. It's impossible for us to do anything good if we are loving things in the wrong order. This is just, isn't just Augustine's view, right? I mean, isn't that exactly what Jesus is getting at? Is he not the one that just prioritized us what the first and greatest commandment is? Is he not the one that said, this is first and this is second? Is he not the one that says, "I hey, don't quit living, loving yourself, but don't love yourself more than you love other people? Isn't he the one that said we should be raising up the love of others? Isn't he the one that said we should be devoting ourselves first to a love for God? I think this is what he's saying, that this is, this is what life, in fact, if we're going to fulfill the law, if we're going to obey the law, if we're going to live in light of the prophets, this is the key. Loving God in the right priority. Loving others in the right priority. But I think and it, this is exactly what Paul picks up on in 1 Corinthians 13 as he's about to teach the church in Corinth about love. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I do things that are, like speaking a language that I don't know, Do this miraculous thing, but I don't have love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. But if I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And I think most often when we consider this passage, we consider it in terms of loving others. You know, we we move really quickly into the whole love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, and go on. And and, and we picture this love, an expression of love, in terms of others. And I think that's right, but I think by itself it's incomplete. Because Christ has already commanded us to love God first, that we would then love others. Others second. See, until we get our love in the right order, until we are loving God first, we cannot worship Him. Because we will love ourselves so much, we will erect a, a God of our own. We will love something else. Until we love God first, we cannot obey Him because every time we go to Him, so so we do things out of love that are just an act of love. Like waking up in the middle of the night to feed a child who I mean, you've you got to admit, in the middle of the night, we're not the friendliest people, right? And then the child is like, oh, crying. You can't please the, the baby. They can't do a thing back to make you feel good. It is an act of love. We cannot obey him until we are loving him. Because until we love him, we will never really truly obey him. We will always act in our own interest. We might follow his law but it will be for our own purposes and our own gain it will not be an act of love we cannot serve his mission until we love him most because until we love him most we will only ever serve the mission we love most and we cannot love others as we love ourselves until until we love god first because until we love god first you and I are ultimately the ones sitting upon the throne of our life determining those things that we will love. And it's typically not our neighbors as ourselves. On the flip side, though, as we learn to love God, as we live in light of his love, as we receive the gospel and by the Spirit are empowered to die to ourselves and love God more, then we are able to love ourselves rightly in the right order, not more than our neighbors, not, uh, not, not necessarily less than our neighbors, but we are to, able to love ourselves in the right order, which means that we're able to put God first Even if imperfectly, by the power of the Spirit, we are able to begin to love God first and love others, love our neighbors as ourselves. But until we get God where he belongs, nothing else will work. We are nothing more than a clanging cymbal. We are nothing. We gain nothing, Paul says. So we love God for who he is, because he is the only one gloriously worthy. We love God for what he has done, because he loved us first. We love God because it is the only avenue for us to do good. We love God first, fourth. We love God. Loving God is the first priority, because in it we are reconciled to the joy and peace of knowing him. And as I sat in the first service and sang and worshipped, I realized that this should say joy and peace and hope of knowing him. So, for his answer, as Jesus is tested for his answer, he draws from Moses. He looks back to Deuteronomy 6 5. We've already read that. He, he draws this command, he draws the greatest command right from there. It's called the, the Shema, and the, the Jewish people would have, have uh, prayed it every day. The idea here is that if you go, well, let me, just, let me just do this. So it's going to take just a minute. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you've got, you got your Bible open, flip over there. I'm not going to read the whole thing for the sake of time. I want to highlight just a couple of issues. It picks up in verse 4. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So he commands this. He says, not only are you supposed to do this, you're supposed to remember it. And then it goes on and he says, you're supposed to teach it to your children. The handing off of the, to the next generation so that the next generation knows God's love and knows how they're supposed to respond to God's love. He says you should bind them. In verse 8 he tells them you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be on the front, as front frontlets between your eyes. So they, they called them phylacteries. They would tie them to their wrists and to their heads and, and inside the, these little boxes that they tied to themselves were, were statements, were the words written, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And they would bind them to themselves so that they wore them everywhere they went. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The idea here is that God longs for them to know this. He longs for them to express it. He longs for them to, uh, demands for them even, to, to remember it, to never forget it. And then he goes into this expression where first he shows them that if they don't do this, they will be destroyed. But if they'll do it, that they will be blessed. And he reminds them all the way through the worship of God in loving God first, being extended and giving, be, being the reason for which we tell this to other people. In verse 20, you'll pick it up. It says, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules of the Lord that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders and great grievous against great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. You see the worship and mission of God all the way through that chapter. The worship of God being the love of God, the expression of his glory and our love for him. And and then the expression to the next generation. And when they ask, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to explain all that God has done to love us. So that we will love him. And then it says in verse 24, this powerful phrase in verse 24, it says, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good. Always. See, there's some idea in the world that God has given us commands and statutes to limit us. to to keep us from our best good, to keep us from becoming all that we can. Some idea that God has just got his thumb on us and keeping us from enjoying all that we possibly could. He gives these commands for our good always, the, the, the Israelites said, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. God's commands are never simply to limit us. If we disobey, they certainly will condemn. But if we obey them, they are for our good. It's in the obedience of these things that we find joy. Even as a believer, standing here today as someone who has received the grace of Christ, you walk in disobedience, you will not know the full joy of being a believer to being a Christian. You you won't know the peace that comes, that passes understanding. Unless you are trusting Christ, you will not know. And regardless of the circumstances and situations, as the world falls apart around you, if you will not walk in obedience to God's commands, you will not know the peace that passes understanding. He doesn't tell you these things. He doesn't say, love me first, simply to condemn you. He says, love me first as an invitation to enjoy him fully, to know his Peace because it is. It. it is for our good. He calls us to obedience. But here's the problem. Who of us is able to do this? As your pastor, I'm telling you, I fail at this. This is why I wish I had gotten that word sooner, that word hope. See, because loving God first is the first priority because in it we are reconciled to the joy and peace and hope of knowing him. What I can't do, what you can't do, our Savior Jesus Christ has done. He loved his father Primarily and preeminently, there was no one else that was first. All he did was for his glory. And he loved us as, his, as he loved himself. He loved us as he loved himself. He, he benefited and blessed people who would never follow him. He spoke truth to people and offered grace to people who would always reject him. He healed people made people well who would simply ignore him. But he loved us as he loved himself. So he died sacrificially in our place for our sin. That he might rise victoriously. Promising us hope. Because here's, here's the hope. That there's a day coming that in faith, through faith in Christ, there is a day coming where this body of flesh and death is removed. And I am given a body that will love him first. And all my strivings today are simply in view of the day that I stand in his presence, seeing him with my own eyes. (laughs) Loving him with my whole being. Because he is so gloriously worthy. Because he has so graciously loved us. Because he has done such great and powerful things for us. And because I will finally, you will finally be able to do all the good that we long to do. And there will be no distance between the joy and the peace. And that hope will have become sight. Because it will be fulfilled through our faith in Christ. So why do we love him first? (laughs) Is there another way to respond to this great God? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your gospel. For your love, your grace, for your mercy upon us. Thank you for your power at work in us. That even now, that even now this body of death by the new man alive in us Can begin to be directed to love you. Forgive us as we fail and remind us of how good it is for us to obey when we do. I pray these things in Jesus' name, by his power, in his might, by the working of the Spirit within us. Amen.